Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. On our last podcast, we gave you a look at Jim on the witness stand in the courtroom during the inquiry of the wreckage of the Patna. Now, today, we want to continue that discussion by showing you the the unique way Jim encounters Marlowe and will delve into chapters 5 and possibly chapter 6 of this complex work of fiction. Now, there is much to unpack in these early chapters, and as difficult as they are to read, we really need to understand them if you're going to understand this whole book. And as I said before, the more I read it, the more I like it, and the more I want you to like it. Now, to help me do this today, with me in the studio again is my partner in crime, I mean literature, <laughs> my wonderful wife, Deborah. Welcome back, dear. Thank you. It's good to be here again. <laughs> yes. So if you remember, back to our last program, if you listened to it, you probably didn't even listen to it on the radio. Anyway, on the last podcast, I mentioned Conrad's manipulation of time and events like a movie director does to create suspense. Now, for everybody out there, I thought about this even more, especially getting ready for today's program. This is how we have to really prepare ourselves to read this book. Because as you get into chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and you keep going, is is uh, Conrad really does manipulate time and he manipulates events and he does it all to create suspense for us. And I know uh, I've talked to several people about Lord Jim and they just always roll their eyes at me. I said, do you read Lord Jim? And they go, oh, yes. You know. But but uh, it's like a movie. You know, you, you buy, uh, I, I've been in movies where I paid a good price to go to the movie and didn't understand the thing that was going on. I didn't leave the theater, <laughs> right? You're not going to give up your money. So, uh, you know, if you bought the book, don't give up now. I mean, uh, it does take a full understanding of the book, and it will come just at the end. Uh, so hang in there. Don't quit. You know, don't walk out of the movie. We're just really getting started. So there's a lot. There's a lot to this story. I mean, it's, it's uh, the Patna is going to drift into the past before we get to the end of this book. So essentially, uh, dear, let's just uh, finish up on Chapter 4. We didn't get all the way through it, and um, uh, maybe I could just give a little background here just to, to remind everybody where we were. In Chapter 4, we, we find Jim on the witness stand, and he begins to communicate the details on the events. And, uh, in fact, he's frustrating the magistrates because all they want is facts. They don't want to hear the whole story. They don't want to hear what led to, um, let's say, maybe the emotions going on at the time, going on the ship. Um, uh, they don't want to hear about the captain. They don't want to hear about the skipper. They, I mean, the skipper or the captain. They don't want to hear about the engineer. They just want to know why the Patna had the wreckage. Now, I think it's also, and uh, uh, again, this is probably going to going to uh, uh, maybe hurt some of your reading or not. But uh, the reason that um, 
all of this is going on with the magistrates is they want to take Jim down. And I know that's in later chapters, so uh, we don't want I don't think it's wrong to tell them that, though, dear. So anyway, uh, they want to take Jim down. But um, uh, the thing that we want to know about this chapter four is it is the third jump in time in just these these few chapters. So he's really jumping ahead again. And uh, it's a different scene and it can be confusing. And uh, again, one of the things that I think is still interesting with all of what we've seen in the courtroom to this point is Conrad just still keeps us in suspense as to what happened on the Patna. I mean, it's like I keep looking for what really happened, what really happened. And uh, you probably read far in advance, so don't tell me. I won't. No spoiler (laughs) alerts, please. All right. But anyway, I just thought, uh, let's go to page 21. And uh, uh, I think we just need to do this um, just to keep everybody in, um, in uh, well, in, in tune with us and also kind of remind them where we were uh, last podcast. So, so this is talking about Jim when he's on the, uh, the witness stand and how he handles himself. It says he spoke slowly. He remembered swiftly and with extreme vividness he could have reproduced like an echo the moaning of the engineer for the better information of these men who wanted facts. And so so, uh, if you've read uh, up to this point, you know there was a lot of um, confusion going on. You know, the captain himself, or I shouldn't call him captain, maybe I should just call him the skipper. And uh, he was a Welsh German, and he was uh, kind of a case in himself, and we'll talk a little bit more about him today. But there was a lot of confusion going on, and it says uh, 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 Jim was trying to give them all this background, but they just wanted the facts. It's after his first feeling of revolt, he had come round to the view that only a meticulous precision of statement would bring out the true horror behind the appalling face of things. The facts those men were so eager to know had been visible, tangible, open to the senses, occupying their place in space and time, requiring for their existence a 1400 steamer and 27 minutes by the watch. They made a whole that had features, shades of expression, a complicated aspect that could be remembered by the eye, and something else besides, something invisible, a directing spirit of perdition that dwelt within like a malevolent soul in a detestable body. He was anxious to make this clear. And so so the magistrates could have cared less. So do you have any comments about that? Well, it's true. They, they just wanted to get the facts. They're, I Somehow I get this feeling you kind of, it's like you almost, I don't know if they were bored, but it's almost like they're just going through the motions, you know, just, okay, they just want the basic facts. And and you know they—that's what they're looking at. Whereas there are people in the in the um, who are watching them, um, some of the, the townspeople and, and other people who are interested in, in, in shipping, they're they're more interested. They kind of want to know, the, like they're probably more interested in the emotion. But these these uh, men they're asking the questions. It's just the facts. Right. It's yeah. like it's like mm-hmm. they It's almost like uh, I think they were they felt um, they were pushed into it, pushed into being the magistrates, you know, it's like they really didn't want to bother with it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, but it's still, again, we still don't understand why they are bored, bored because this is really a big deal. 
I mean, it's a big deal. There's a lot of people in this courtroom. And, uh, you know, it's, when you read it, you could get the feeling it's Jim and the magistrates. But no, there's, there's a lot of people in this courtroom, and a lot of the people are interested in it. Because remember, there were 800 people on this ship. And so, so we still, as of this point, we don't know what happened to all of them in the story. And so, so uh, uh, you know, Jim, Jim, I think, really has this, um, this real sense about him that, that he wants them to know, to know absolutely everything. Let's just uh, let's let's go, skip over to page twenty-three and just bring this uh, this whole thing up about the big the big assessor and, and there he is he's bored. Uh, this is at the top of page twenty-three. It's the first full paragraph. It says the big assessor had dropped his eyelids and drummed on without a sound, careless and mournful. The eyes of the other above the sunburnt clasped fingers seemed to glow with ki- uh, kindliness. The magistrate had swayed forward. His pale face hovered near the flowers, and then dropping sideways over the arm of his chair, he rested his temple in the palm of his hand. The wind of the punkas eddied down on the heads, on the dark-faced natives wound about in, in voluminous draperies, on the Europeans. So, so here's, here's what's in the, the courtroom. There are the dark-faced natives, but that says, there was also Europeans sitting together, very hot and in drill suits, that seemed to fit them as close as their skins and holding their round pith hats on their knees while gliding along the walls to court peons, buttoned tight in long white coats, flitted rapidly to and fro, running on bare toes, red-sashed and turban on head, as noiseless as ghosts on the alert like so many of the riveters. Now, the, the, the thing is, there was, this was big news. And, uh, you know, I, I think Jim is beginning to, you know, experience you know, suspect that he's going to have to take the fall for this. And so, so you can see he would be concerned. Now, this is what we've been promising um, our listeners for, for two programs now, now the third program. Here, we're finally going to see where Jim encounters Marlowe. And so, so notice it says, Jim, Jim's eyes, wandering in the intervals of his answers, rested upon a white man who sat apart from the others with his face worn and clouded, but with quiet eyes that glanced straight and interested and clear. He glanced straight, excuse me. He glanced, he had quiet eyes that glanced straight and interested and clear. Now, that's a different view of Marlowe than we had, let's say, with, um, you know, Heart of Darkness or even with Youth. You know, um, uh, here he looks like he's, um, he's, he's, he's got a worn face, he's a little little old, he's got quiet eyes, uh, but he's definitely uh, interested in clear. Jim answered another question and was tempted to cry out, what's the good of this? What's the good? He tapped with his foot slightly, bit his lip, and looked away over the heads. He met the eyes of the white man. The glance directed at him was not the fascinated stare of, of the others. It was of an, uh, an act of intelligent volition. And so, so here, there, there's this first encounter between Jim and Marlowe, and he has really a very positive comment about him. That word volition there, if you don't know what that is, you need to look it up. I tell my students that all the time. If, you're not, if you don't have a dictionary when you're reading this book, <laughs> you're going to be lost. You need to read a dictionary with it. 
But but anyway, uh, volition is just a faculty or a power of using one's will. And so so here, you know, Jim is looking out at Marlowe, sees him, you know, in the crowd, and makes this conclusion: this guy, you know, has power. This guy has the power to use his will. And so so uh, you could see. You know, I, I think it, it reveals a little bit about Jim's own personality, and certainly I think he was a man of power. He certainly had, you know, the uh, the look of a leader. We know he was tall, blonde. You know, some of the great kings of England were tall and blonde, and uh, you know, people people like to see that kind of leadership, or even to have the the stamina of a leadership. He said. Uh, uh, he said, um, he goes on to say, Jim, between two questions, forgot himself so far as to find leisure for a thought. This fellow ran the thought, looks at me as though he could he could see somebody or something past my shoulder. He had come across that man before in the street, perhaps. He was positive. He had never spoken to him for days. For many days, he had spoken to no one, but had held silent incoherent and endless converse with himself like a prisoner alone in his cell or like a wayfarer lost in the wilderness and uh it, it just it, I, I think what what's going on here with jim and you can chime in here anytime but jim he's alone now he's he doesn't have any friends you know and anybody he was on the ship with he he's alone he's up there answering all the questions and uh, i think he's getting really discouraged. He said, at present he was answering questions that did not matter, though they had a purpose, but he doubted whether he would ever again speak out as long as he lived. He said, the sound of his own truthful statements confirmed his deliberation, deliberate opinion that speech was of no use to him any longer. That man there seemed to be aware of his hopeless difficulty. And so, uh, uh, you know, I think Marlowe is a pretty good judge of character, but it seems like Jim is as well. Yes, yeah, so he well, he definitely is alone at this point. Yes, and and it does seem like he 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 it just for him it's it's like we always sometimes we talk about kindred spirits. I don't think it was just the fact that he could see someone who seemed interested in him, you know, not just you know for this from the sake of. Of gory, gory details that you know the other people were looking at. Right, right. So, so I, I think that's interesting. That that that's just a quick, quick little snippet there. And uh, you know, Conrad again, he just uh, he kind of moves on. He says uh, he goes on to says, and later on, many times in distant parts of the world, Marlowe showed himself willing to remember him at length, in detail and audibly. So, so all of a sudden, now we're going to get into our next jump. I mean, this, we're, we're, here we're going to go again. And uh, so, so again, if you notice, Conrad doesn't give us any more details about the Patna. But now he brings us into, uh, you know, this, this uh, relationship between Jim and Marlowe. Now, notice again here, Conrad introduces us to the impact, I think, of Marlowe's personality. And so, so notice what this very next paragraph on page 24 does. It says, Perhaps it would be after dinner or on a veranda draped in motionless foliage and crowned with flowers in the deep dust speckled by the fiery cigar ends. The elongated bulk of each cane chair harbored a silent listener. Now and then a small red glow would, would move abruptly, 
and expanding light up the fingers of a languid hand, part of a face in profound repose, or flash a crimson gleam into a pair of pensive eyes, overshadowed by a fragment of an unruffled forehead, and with the very first word uttered Marlowe's body, extended at rest in the seat, would become very still as though his spirit had, had winged its way back into the lapse of time and were speaking through his lips from the past. <laughs> so so uh, that is Conrad giving a great billing to his favorite character, Marlowe. And so, uh, you know, he opens his mouth and out comes history, <laughs> the history of the past. So uh, uh, I think it's interesting, you know, how, how um, Conrad builds all this. And, and I do, before we, we finish this, this uh, book, I do want to talk about all the little snippets we're going to get about Marlowe. I mean, there's, there's almost like there's the story of Jim in this book, but there's also the story of Marlowe in this book. And I, I think it's, um, it's uh, going to be interesting to, to go through all this. So Jim sees Marlowe as uh, having intelligent volition, and uh, we now see that Jim feels this sense of hopelessness in answering all these questions. But uh, uh, notice Conrad just kind of dumps all that. <laughs> he starts talking about Marlowe. All right. So uh, now, we've, now we're into Chapter 5, and we promised everybody we'd get to Chapter 5 last time. Hopefully we're going to get to Chapter 6 today. We'll have to see. We're running out of time. I do think it's interesting that he, it seems to be the way um, Conrad likes to, likes to use Marlowe is Marlowe's always telling a story. And they, and, and and he'll break into, you know, these little scenes, you know, like here after dinner, and, you know, it gives a description of the, the glow of, of, of the, um, I guess, a, a cigar, right? Cigars. Yes. It's kind of like dark. Yeah, dark, then. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's always, because that's the way it was on, in, you know, is they were on a, a ship. On, the Nelly. And the Nelly on, yeah. um, you know, in Heart of Darkness. And so, and even with youth also, that was, isn't there, does he talk about that in youth, I think, right? I'm pretty he, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like this is a. He talks whale. about the Nelly in youth as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the first time we run, run into it. So, so, but, but anyway, the, the, the thing I think it's interesting here, let's say about Jim is, um, it's, it's almost to me, it's like Marlowe is just totally attracted to young guys that have strength and he sees this in Jim and, uh, but, but I also think now he's a mature Marlowe. He's been, you know, in the uh, shipping business or, you know, been, uh, chief mate he's been through all these things and uh, I think he knows you know sometimes that being a chief mate can be a very precarious position and uh, um, I, I just think this next paragraph and this is uh, the bottom of page 24 but it's beginning of, of chapter 5 again this is our fourth jump into a, to a new scene or a, a time uh, we see Marlowe telling the story but but if but if you look at what he starts out with it's almost this is this is conrad almost bringing us back to heart of darkness to talk about human nature he just talks about it right away he says uh this is again the bottom of page 24 oh yes i attended the inquiry he would say and to the day i haven't left off wondering why i went and so so here again that was big news and this port you know where where uh, they were all uh, you know, stuck with. And uh, he said, well, yeah, I went, but I didn't know why I went. He says, I am willing to believe each of us has a guardian angel. 
if you fellows will concede to me that each of us has a familiar devil as well. I want you to own up because I don't like to feel exceptional in any way, and I know I have him, the devil I mean. I haven't seen him, of course, but I go upon circumstantial evidence. He is right there enough, and being malicious, he lets me in for the kind of th- that kind of thing. What kind of thing, you ask? Why, the inquiry thing, the yellow dog thing. You wouldn't think a, a mangy native tyke would be allowed to trip up people in the veranda of a magistrate's court, would you? The kind of thing that by devious, unexpected, truly diabolical ways causes me to run up against men with soft spots, with hard spots, with hidden plague spots, and loosens their tongues at the sight of me for their infernal confidences as though, forsooth, I had no confidences to make to myself, as though, God help me, I didn't have enough confidential information about myself to harrow my own soul to the end of my appointed time. And what have I done to be thus favored? I want to know. And so, so here, I mean, don't you think that's, that's an amazing comment? He's saying, look, <laughs> I know, I know that I have evil and it's in me. And he said, do you guys realize you have evil too? And, uh, so, so essentially, uh, I know you're smiling at me. I don't want to just, I don't just want to keep ranting on. So what do you think? Well, yes, um, he is, he is talking about himself in human nature, and uh, I, um, I didn't really have anything else. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was... <laughs> but, but why, why interjected here? That's that's my question. Right. And and I think I think what he's saying here is that what really attracted him to to uh, to Jim is that this guy's stuck in a bad situation, and you know I think he wants to know: is there evil in this guy? You know, that, that's what has him curious. It says, you know, he, he wants to be in the inquiry to see where the inquiry is going. And, uh, you know, it is, is uh, uh, you know, does, did he make a mistake? Uh, in, other, in other words, I mean, Jim has a lot of ability. He's, he's uh, you know, he sees the volition in, in uh, Marlowe. Well, you know, that, that means he must have a lot of will, too. So, so I think what, what between the lines you're reading Marlowe, and again, if you put it all together, Marlowe is pretty curious about a lot of things. We saw it in youth, you know. We saw, you know, saw him in youth. We saw that, and uh, you know, it's like he's saying we all make mistakes. That's what I think he's saying there, and it, what really made him stick with the inquiry, he wanted to see where this was going with Jim. You know, he, he didn't know he didn't know what else. Uh, why would he stick with it? I mean, he doesn't know Jim, uh, but obviously, you know, he's very curious about him. And so, so I, anyway, I, I think that that's that's uh, you know just a, a really uh, amazing beginning to this whole story on Marlowe, and uh, you know why he got into to the inquiry. All right, um, <clears throat> let's skip over to page twenty-five, and. Uh, you know, he's talking about about Master Jim here and about the story, and uh, you know he really, in some ways, I think we ought to we talk about it this way: as Marlowe now takes control of Jim's story, and so you know he he's not been a, a, a parent in the first four chapters, but now I think we ha- we have to assume that from chapter five on, we're going to be hearing Marlowe tell the story, 
and uh, you know Marlowe is actually going to go on. I think this this um, this search uh, to really to really um, let's say prove the facts about Jim's life. And uh, bottom of page twenty five, if you if you really look there, um, there's really Marlowe's view of Jim, and he says, "My eyes met his for the first time at that inquiry." You must know that everybody connected in any way with the sea was there because the affair had been notorious for days. Ever since that mysterious cable message came from Aiden to start us all cackling. And so, so obviously this hit the news big time in that area. And it says, I must, I say mysterious because it was in, so in a sense that it contained a naked fact about as naked and ugly as a fact can well be. And so notice he says, well, there's a naked fact. He doesn't tell us what the fact is. <laughs> no, it keeps us in suspense for quite a while. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said it's about as naked and ugly as fact can be. It can well be. The whole waterside talked of nothing else. First thing in the morning, I was dressing in my stateroom. So now he's still on the ship. I mean, the thing is, Marlowe is on the ship at this time. He said, I would hear through the bulkhead my Parsi dubash jabber jabbering about the patent with the steward while he drank a cup of tea by favor in the pantry. No sooner on shore I would meet some acquaintance, and the first remark would be, did you ever hear of anything to beat this? And according to his kind, the man would smile cynically or look sad or let out a swear or two. Complete strangers would accost each other's familiarity just for the sake of easing their minds on the subject. I ask at this point, I mean, I'm talking about myself, I'm not reading, what subject? <laughs> right, yes. yes I want to do an Oprah. Suspe- yes. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of like this is the modern day, you know, I, we, we, we get news all the time and people... And it's on, you know, all the time. People talk about things in the news. Well, here they're they're talking about it. I mean, complete strangers are talking about it. It's everyone's. Yeah. It's on everybody's mind right now. What, yeah. Whatever it is, we don't know what it is. Yeah. Right. And and mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the other thing too is I think it does kind, kind of gives insight into the British Empire at that time. I mean, all these people are different races. They're all they're all uh, you know they're they're in the merchant marines. They're they're making goods. You know they're they're growing in wealth. You know, and so, so I, th- I think is to me. Uh, of course, you you personally know how much I love everything English, and uh, and certainly have a lot of respect for the British Empire. He said, uh, I, I just read that. He said, uh, maybe I'll just repeat that. Complete strangers would accost each other familiarly just for the sake of easing their minds on this subject. Every confounded loafer in the town came in for a harvest of drinks over this affair. So people were making money <laughs> because of it. You heard of it in the harbor office at every ship brokers, at your agents, from whites, from natives, from half-castes, from the very boatmen squatting half-naked on the stone steps as you went up. There was some indignation, not a few jokes, and no end of discussion as to what had become of them, you know. So become of who? You know, he doesn't tell us. This went on for a couple of weeks or more, and the opinion that whatever was mysterious in this affair would turn out to be tragic as well began to prevail with one fine morning as I was standing in the shade by the steps of the harbor's office. I perceived four men walking towards me along the quay. I wondered for a while where that queer lot had sprung from, and suddenly I may say I shouted to myself, 
here they are. So who are they here? Who are they? And what do we find out? It's the skipper <laughs> and the engineers. And uh, he doesn't have a very good opinion of them, does he? No. <laughs> he, says, he says, there they were, sure enough, the three of them as large as life, and one much larger of girth than any living man has a right to be, <laughs> just landed with a good breakfast inside of them from an outward-bound Dale liner steamer that had come in about an hour after sunrise. There could be no mistake. I spotted the jolly skipper of the Patna at the first glance, the fattest man in the whole blessed tropical belt, clear round that good old earth of ours. <laughs> and so, so uh, he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, the crew. And so, uh, as, as uh, always uh, happens to us, uh, we're running, we're running out of time. And uh, maybe I can get, just get some more of this in here. He said, uh, he goes on to say, I'll skip over to page 27 quickly. He says, I was looking at him from the shade. He was hurrying on a little in advance, and the sunlight beating on him brought out his bulk in a startling way. He made me think of a trained baby elephant <laughs> walking on hind legs. He was extravagantly gorgeous, too. Got up in a soiled sleeping suit, bright green and deep orange vertical stripes, with a pair of ragged straw slippers on his bare feet, and somebody's cast-off pith hat, very dirty and two sizes too small for him, tied up with a manila rope yarn on the top of his big head. You understand a man like that hasn't the ghost of a chance when it comes to borrowing clothes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so that's his impression of the skipper. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will discuss uh, Jim's one-on-one -on -one encounter with Marlo. And so... Uh, uh, what the, what we saw in the courtroom isn't the big encounter. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And I just wanted to say thank you for all of you that are giving me likes on Facebook. That has really uh, increased quite a bit since we beefed up our Facebook page. So keep letting me know you're listening. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.